0: oh yeah this is a normal thing three candidates always resign just before the biggest <laughs> yeah. primary weekend in a in a totally and, non-coordinated way like it's just yeah. unbelievable and all give their
1: support for one candidate just
0: yeah so cynical so you know there, there's no pretense there there's no pretense whatsoever it was just like hey this guy's getting too close
2: Welcome back to I'm the Villain. Today, we're going to be talking about (laughs) radicalization, which is a topic that I think is very (laughs) much on people's minds right now, especially for me personally. Um, You know, after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, I am very much on the radicalization train. So (laughs) today we're talking with Rowan Emsley, who is talking to us from Brussels, actually. So I think this is going to be really interesting to get this, you know, have this conversation from you know the perspective of somebody who's actually like kind of outside of the U.S. because I've been thinking about this from a very U.S. centric perspective but Rowan why don't you just go ahead and give us um the listeners you know a few sentences whatever you think they should know about you.
0: Yeah sure um well thank you for having me first of all uh so I'm Rowan I'm originally from the U.K. um but I have been a sort of um As some colleagues say, jokingly, a political refugee here in mainland Europe uh, for, you know, the last five or six years. I'm a digital communications expert uh, for my sort of day job, but I also run a podcast called Connected and Disaffected, which is all about um, sort of millennials and their integration into politics and all the reasons why... uh, they spend a lot of time doom scrolling online and uh, feeling blackpilled about everything and and maybe some ways that we can move that conversation forwards, um, which is not always easy uh, in the last few years, as I'm sure you're aware, but that's kind of the, yeah. That's that's what we try to do.
1: I think it's funny that you're owning radicalization for yourself because I feel like like in our generation, we're like kind of using that as a weapon for the other side, right? Yep. Like everyone on the other side, like they're radicalized, but we're just like fighting for human rights or like the other side, thinks like those lefties are radicalized and like trying to take away everyone's rights. But I, I enjoy you uh, <laughs> reclaiming the the, the the term.
0: Well, I, I think there's been, uh, there's a slightly strange narrative around this, right? So the, there's obviously been the, the growth of, um, of the or the rebirth rather of, of socialism, democratic socialism, progressivism, whatever you want to call it, um, in many countries, but notably the US and the UK, in the last uh, five years or so. And because both in the UK and the US, the, the leadership have been like old 70s socialists, right? Jeremy Corbyn, who's like the most, you know, traditional, like in in the UK press, he was just mocked for being so like cartoonishly a 70s socialist. Um, And then then you have, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, obviously in the US. But I think because it's like, these old dudes who've kind of come back from what was very unpopular politics for 40 years or so, I think there's this sense that it's like, oh, all these young people are being led astray, you know, by these radicalizing older influences, and how can we stop this, you know, and get them back on the correct path? But the more I've kind of thought about this, the more we've talked about all all the sort of extant problems in politics, the more I think, well... I mean, there's a lot of good reasons to be radicalized if you're, uh, you know, under 40 or even under 50. Like there's a lot of good reasons, a good material analysis of, of your circumstance and the world, you know, to be dissatisfied with the status quo. I I think it's an odd thing to say, well, we've, you know, we solved, we, we solved it. We, we did neoliberalism. <laughs> you know end of history and all that good stuff is and it's it's working out great you know like what where is that coming from i don't get it because often what we heard when corbyn first came around was hey you know we tried socialism and it didn't work and it's like i always feel like saying well yeah now we've tried the other thing and that's also not working so like (laughs) so we got to do something yeah there's got to be another choice here you know Right. So, yeah. And it's
2: also not even necessarily this like, okay, this like rejection of like, okay, this never worked. Like, I think you could very well see it as like, okay, capitalism was like this necessary part of this progression. And like, you know, at the time, that was like the most, the most kind of social justice oriented system around. But we can like, you know, accept that and then like, be like okay but we have to <laughs> you know we are now in this like late capitalism phase right. where we're trying to be like okay now that we have done that and it has had some benefits for you know people around the world okay how can we get to the next level yeah rather right? rather <laughs> than
0: just being like no this is it this is as good oh, this, sucks, this is right? as good yeah. as it gets you know yeah, yeah. it's the uh, it's that that joke tweet right I, I just got back from the centrist rally so inspiring uh, crowd of people chanting uh, we can never have anything better. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and there's something it, there feels like there's some kind of mechanism that, um, you know, maybe it's global. Certainly within the U.S. That really kind of prevents the iteration that feels necessary to be able to make changes to our economic system in mm-hmm. a way that in a way that is responsive to the needs of people. But that feels like not a big ask for me. Like <laughs> like. It feels like it should be a reasonable ask to be like, okay, so we have things that we know are good. Can we respond to the things that we think are bad? But maybe in doing so, it would involve, you know, people in power giving up some power, but maybe we can go into that a little
0: bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is typically the big, uh, the big barrier <laughs> I would say. Yeah. I mean, I, I, so I, I'm from, I'm from London. As I said, I've finished high school in 2008, right at the the peak of the, you know, global economic crisis, which, uh, you know, for for US listeners, London is the, you know, one of the economic hubs of the world in terms of banking and finance, right? Uh, And the UK, the economy is largely made up of the service sector, and a huge chunk of that is finance. So it's really like our entire economy post the 1970s, post the, you know, Thatcher and the birth of neoliberalism was really based on well, how how much can we juice up this financial sector? So the kind of the collapse of that was should have been a a serious uh, impact, a serious threat on. Okay, well, where are we going as a country? And I remember going to um, you know Occupy, uh, not Wall Street, obviously, but Occupy London, and seeing all of this, all of this, uh, these new thinkers that have been kind of dismissed. Um, you know, David Graeber was based at LSC at the time who came up with the phrase, we are the 99%. He recently died. Um, and there was a, there's all this energy around that. And, and this realization that everything that had gone wrong was the thing that we'd bet on as a country. Right. And then there were no repercussions for that <laughs> at all, at all. And then, and then I went to university And, uh, all of the economics classes I had, all of the politics classes I had were just like, yep, this is, um, you know, it used to be that there are two competing economic ideologies and then we settled on this one and it was the best one. And, uh, neoliberalism is like the best version of that. And there was no like, oh, maybe we should reconsider any aspect of this. It was just like orthodoxy, orthodoxy, orthodoxy. And it felt insane. You know, it felt like we were living in a, in this crazy world. So that was kind of the start, I think, the start of the journey for a lot of people. That's almost like that's the big bang, I think, for millennials is Mm -hmm. the 2008 crisis. And I know, like, obviously, in the the States as well, because, in a in a much more real way, it was is based on people's houses and like where they lived. Um, Whereas ours was just like betting on that housing market, you know, (laughs) which is even more sort of gross, grotesque and vulture like kind of activity. But I can also imagine that this is this is this big moment in the US for people to start being kind of radicalized say hey we we need to rethink where we're going
1: yeah and when you say um, there are no repercussions do you mean for like the banking companies in London
0: yeah I mean nothing changed absolutely nothing changed no you know no banker went to jail right like the the um, one of the guys who went to jail was a whistleblower -hmm. It's just like, cool. Okay, what are we doing here? Like, how many people are out of work? How much money lost? You know, the uh, huge spending from taxpayers. You know, this is an enormous uh, disaster, and we know who did it, and yet nothing happened. Nothing changed. Right. (laughs) And now we're we're just right back to it. We're just right back to it, and it, you know like, like uh, six months I think or maybe nine months that house prices in London went down and then uh, nine months later you know everyone's still unemployed but the house house prices keep going up you know it's just like okay we're just going to pretend this didn't happen
2: yeah my mom is, is a lawyer and she worked very briefly for Barclays right after they had the LIBOR scandal mm-hmm. which is basically you know for those who don't know like the ba- Barclays was this you know big bank in London that was kind of doing this fixing of the interest rates, right? And um, they found out that that had happened and it just was like this huge kind of like scandal, basically. And, um, you know, afterwards they were doing these like ethics, you know, reorientation trainings for people mm-hmm. and it was just like such a joke.
0: Yeah, yeah, people have to do right? like a half-day workshop or whatever on like yeah. having moral <laughs> morals. Yeah, like don't... Yeah
1: don't predatorily lend to people? Like, what is that? <laughs> what is yeah. that? Yeah,
0: <laughs> I it, it, crazy. Like there, there's no other place where that works, but I mean, this is the, this is the problem with the sort of system of going, well, we bet everything on the service economy and this is the biggest single chunk of the service economy. So like, there's no turning this car around, you know? Right. Um. So that was kind of, I think that's, I have like four four things I think that people should be radicalized about, but I think that was the first one is these like economic crises. Because we had 2008 and then there was the Euro crisis uh, a little bit later on in, in Europe. Um, and then obviously now we're having the COVID-related crisis. So that's, that's three apparently generational crises in the first 15 years of my, you know, adult life. Yeah.
1: yeah. Think, <laughs> things that should you know, indicates <laughs> things that should indicate to the average human, much like certainly a millennial, but to the average human that the economy does not give a single fuck about you. Yeah. Well, I mean, and what's the
0: definition of insanity, right? Like yeah. just, Okay. We're just going to keep doing this.
1: Cool. And that we, you know, the government will kind of let it crash and then pour a lot of like money back into it, but you will probably get none of that money.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, that's, that's, that's one, right? So if, just ongoing economic instabilities, which should make anybody, any voter, go, hey, we are not managing the economy properly. I mean, the, we keep having these same issues over and over. Like, this isn't the stable growth uh, based system that we were led to believe, you know. And yeah. then if you go, Anyone that, you can go deeper and deeper into that, you know, there's different yeah. models. Anyone that's not yeah. in like the top 10% should feel that way. Sure. And even then, actually, the top 10% is like, they're so. They're so much poorer than the top zero point one percent. It's like an yeah. unbelievable stratification, um, you know. So that's a, that's a whole area, and that is basically a, our adult lives have has lived in uh, you know the shadow of a crisis or the recovery from a crisis, which have never really occurred. Like we we never got back to where we were. Um, and then the next one is related to that, which is the just elite failure. So from government to to business um, you know the armed forces like th- there are so many examples that we have in in the last again 15 years of the the leader like leaders who are meant to solve these problems failing to solve the problems or being part of the problem right yeah
2: there was there's a news piece that came out recently that said that part of the the congress passed the cares act which is like this 2 trillion dollar relief um, for for covid and a significant portion of that went to the military. And instead of spending that on, you know, medical supplies, like they said, they would, they spend it on like jets.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, what, I, <laughs> you know, what I just saw an article in foreign policy about how the U S Navy wants to have a 400 ship Navy. And it's like, wh- what is going on? Right. Like, like in this context of <laughs> global lockdown, you know, probably going to be two million people dying from this disease it's like well what we need is more uh, ways to do war right it it seems insane to me but there's so many of the you know right in a row like when I I was a uh, teenager it was you know Afghanistan Iraq right which just were extremely unpopular at the time like in Britain it was the biggest ever uh, protest uh, was against the Iraq war Um, And then they went ahead and it turned into the debacle that everybody thought that they, that was going to turn into. It was like, well, we have no, this isn't, we don't have a plan. Like, how do we leave? What, what, what does success look like? You know, I'm a consultant. Like I would say to them, like what, if we were to do this successfully, what would that look like? And like, that was, that was never a part of the plan. Right. So, so that became this huge issue. You know, and it's another great uh, generational divide, right, where uh, my parents' generation would talk about, like, Vietnam, for example, and it's like, well, Afghanistan's been going on way longer than Vietnam. You know, it's this is, just put it into context, like, this is so many years. Like, it's still happening. There's still people, people in the next generation down are now going to be going and getting deployed to Afghanistan. Like, it's it's insane, right? So there's, right. So there's that. And then there's 2008, no repercussions. And then you have um, the the great hope, the great joy for everybody was Obama, right? Like he's the the single rallying kind of like uh, leader of certainly in the US and the UK. We, we've had terrible uh, prime ministers in the last... <laughs> no one's really gotten that excited about any of them, but Obama coming in, he was the big hope, right? And he made all these promises, but then it all just fell into this kind of managerial limbo where a lot of the things that you wanted to happen, didn't happen or, or they happened, but in a less interesting way than maybe they should have happened, you know, all the, it just, it didn't live up to it. And that's, that's very disheartening and disappointing, I think for a lot of people, and particularly, uh, for, you know, millennials, that's the first person they voted for probably, you know? Right. Um, And so that's a huge disappointment, right? And then you have the rise of populists and, and, you know, lunatics, right, who are now running the show Uh, and all of the corruption and all of the chaos that comes with that, uh, you know, both sides of the Atlantic and also all over Europe as well. I mean, this is not obviously Trump is like the the loudest one of these people, but there are plenty of these people, right? So Mm. um, and then you mentioned it earlier. COVID and all of the insane responses and terrible mismanagement Um, in the UK we're seeing tons and tons of corruption around uh, government um, you know government purchases right going to this small group of people who keep failing like you know 50 million dollars for an app that never gets released on the testing and tracing and then that same company gets the next uh, uh, contract to do that thing it's just like Uh, you know you hear politicians talk a lot about trust and they're like we need more trust in you know in in politics and in in our leaders and it's really the other way around is we haven't seen anything trustworthy you know we've had a lot of disappointments from our leaders um in the last 15 years or so so it's another thing where you go well we can't rely on the people at the top right yeah so therefore we need to shake up the system right this is another radicalizing lever i think and i I don't know if it's talked about enough how disappointing the leadership has been for for a long time. Even the best one, right, ended up being disappointing.
1: Even the one that, like, garnered all the hope and all the support and the thing, you know, people were, like, kind of really hanging their hat on. Yeah. did Did an only okay job at, like, strengthening the safety net for people.
2: Right. Yeah. And even now, as we're going, you know... For us, you know, election day is like, you know, in like 37 days or something, yeah. you know, no one is excited about like Joe Biden. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just more of the same. Right. And so well,
1: and that, it's like we 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 systemically or systematically, like throughout the process of the election. Weeded out the people that we found most exciting.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and and in a in a pretty really sinister way, actually. In particular, in this primary season, where it was like, oh yeah, this is a normal thing. Three candidates always resign just before the biggest <laughs> yeah. primary weekend, in a in a totally non coordinated <laughs> way. Like it's just <laughs> unbelievable. And all give
1: their support for one candidate. Just
0: yeah. so cynical, so you know, there, there's no pretense there. There's no pretense whatsoever. It was just like, hey, this guy's getting too close. You know, the radical change candidate is getting too close. We, I mean, we don't have primaries in, in the UK or anywhere else, actually, uh, <laughs> doesn't have primaries. <laughs> um, but we, we had a somewhat similar thing with Corbyn where when, when he first came in, um, he'd been on every leadership uh, ballot for the Labour Party for like twenty years or something, because the left wing of the party had always been like, okay, yeah, yeah, we need to put somebody up, and then he never got past the first round. He was nowhere near right. Labour Party similar to the Democrats in that it's gone a lot more, um, a lot further to the right in, in since the eighties. Right, um, so he was kind of like, yeah, f- nice. We'll have you know the lefty Jeremy Corbyn on here, and it was a total surprise when he won. And basically, he won because loads of people, mostly young people, joined the Labour Party, and in the Labour Party, the members can also vote for the for the leaders. So, um, which you can't do. Like the the other party in the UK doesn't have that same system. It's all just party by party, and so it was. It freaked everybody out. Basically, they thought it would never happen. And so the whole the commentating class, you know, the the columnists, the media, and all that stuff, they they were like, oh, well, this is ridiculous. Labor have shot themselves in the foot. He's completely unelectable. They just said that from the start, even though he'd gotten like four hundred thousand people to join a political party. Which, if you look at political parties in the U.S., the U.K., Germany, France, they they've been declining in membership since the '60s. This is an yeah. unprecedented uh, reversal. So it's like okay, well, there's something there, but they were just like, nah, dismiss this, dismiss this. No one will ever vote for him. And then he ended up doing pretty well at the next election on a pretty radical manifesto, which was very much like we need to, you know, make things have a lot more public ownership. We need to uh, be a lot more generous, tax people more, you know, just like very old school politics, right? Which again, in the run up to the election all the commentators are like, well, th- these aren't popular. This isn't completely unpopular. Even though if you poll on those particular issues, this is like healthcare in the US. Super right?
2: popular. It's
0: really popular. If you actually yeah. ask people on the issue, the issue is popular. But the then if you go, well, if this guy brings in this, this issue, how do you feel about that? And they go, no, I hate that guy. He's terrible. He's a bad guy. Um, you know, we had this kind of similar thing. And he did really, really well. Almost, uh, you know, almost got the win. And then the whole, the whole apparatus of power just turned on him. And it was like coordinated attack after coordinated attack. And it was kind of that was the that was our version of that the the primary, uh, you know, um, plan. Um, but it was it was so clear that this was like okay, we have to we can't let this guy come anywhere near. You know we'll do anything we can. We'll smear him. We'll tell we'll say anything we can about him uh, to get him out. Which is also, you know, that's pretty radicalizing, I would say. You know, when you see this kind of cynical use of power, um, it really, in an attempt to disenfranchise people, you know, to to push new voters and new energy out of the political system, you go, what? hang on, what is this for? Like, what are we doing? What is this whole circus about? If it's not about arguing about ideas and, and policies in the way that the country should be, what, you know, what's really going on here. And I think that's very, that's very disaffecting for a lot of people, I think, you know?
1: Yeah. I think that a lot of people had that moment in 2016 with when Bernie got fucked by the DNC. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and it got, and it, to me was so shocking and kind of unprecedented because like it was confirmed, yes, there was a coordinated effort yeah, to we make did sure that. that Bernie that Bernie did not get the nomination. And somehow in 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 for this round of primaries it felt less shadowy, you know? It was like, okay, at least they're doing it in like in front of everybody. Like mm-hmm. we can all see what's happening here. But still, yeah, I think I feel like I've met a lot of people that were like, Oh yeah, I became Disaffected, or I became disinterested in in the DNC and whatever, like, and be even participating in the system, because it became so clear how rigged it was in twenty sixteen.
0: Yeah.
2: Mhm. But that I the thing that I think we're dealing with now is that like that's exactly like that disaffectedness and like not feeling like you know our vote has any meaning is exactly what gives
1: yeah those exact actually, people more power yeah it's actually very beneficial to
2: them right they want part. you to think that
0: <laughs> yeah i mean I, and this is why i think we should own the being radicalized thing because it's like well this this should spur you into seeking alternative uh, alternatives right which which is ha- has happened right like the the dsa didn't exist in anybody's minds, you know, outside of a few radical organizers, probably in big cities, right? Like the DSA norm was talking about the DSA in U.S. national politics, uh, even under Obama, right? Right. And now it's this huge player, plenty of Congress people are attached to them. Like that's, that's a big change. And, I, and all of that energy is definitely, you know, Bernie related, right? So... I, I think that's that's kind of the message, right? Is it, to take all these things that are completely dissatisfying and that should be radicalizing you and turn that into or well, we, let's seek alternatives here. Yeah.
1: I think um I wanted to take a step back and define radical, radicalization for listeners, like talk about what we think that means. Yeah. Do we think that means just being so fed up with a system that you're inspired to like act and do something about it?
0: So for me, it's about rejecting the choices that are given to you in the political system. And in the, the US and the UK are similar in this way in that your choices are limited. Um, you know, there's two parties essentially that have any capability of winning and even within those parties, right, normally they run unimposed, right? So even you can't like choose within the party often. And, and it's that thing of like, well, you know, you got to support your side because we're the good side or whatever, you know, or we're the one, you know, you're landlords and we're for landlords, you know, whatever it is, it's very like, it's very limiting and it puts you in this little box. And I think the process of radicalization is saying we reject those boxes. We reject the options available and we would like to do something else. Mm-hmm.
1: What do you think that... How, how do you think that interplays with, and at least in a U.S. context, and it seems like maybe in a U.K. context of like, there's always the narrative of people being like, we can't afford to try and think outside of the box right now because we have to get so-and-so out of power. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they don't have to be mutually exclusive yeah. for me personally, but I'd love to get your take on that.
0: I, so I think, I, again, I think this is one of the things... That, I I have heard my whole voting life which is well yeah okay this guy isn't the best candidate but you know he appeals he appeals to the people that um you know wouldn't vote for the our other people right just get, give them something let's go for somebody the safe option the the easy option yeah. because then then we're going to win and and the problem with that if you're a progressive person is that First of all, you end up supporting people who actually don't support the policy positions that you support, and then second of all, it basically hasn't worked since the '90s. Um, in the UK, <laughs> it hasn't worked since the, since Tony Blair, um, and well, I mean, in the US, uh, certainly 2008, right? Like Obama, that's that that's the. That's the ideal situation where it's like okay, he brought across, he brought enough people from from across the aisle whilst uh, enlarging his, his own base, right? For that to be a thing, and then actually to be effective, and you know all the all the great stuff that he did is essentially that first term, right? Mm-hmm. Then the second term stasis uh, had had broken in, and, and the uh, the well the the uniquely kind of paralyzed way that you guys do legislation had had, uh, limited his options to actually achieve anything. Um, so that's the, that's one of the problems is that it doesn't, I feel like the, it doesn't matter how far, uh, to the right we shift. It's never enough. It's never going to be enough for the people on the other side. They'll just say, you know, they're calling Obama a communist, right? <laughs> like, I mean, it, <laughs> it's just, it has no meaning anymore. Even when he's saying, oh, I only want to do bipartisan stuff. I only want to work with sensible Republicans. Me and uh, John McCain were best friends. You know, he's doing everything he possibly can. And it's not enough, not even close. Right. Um, and, and it's no accident that the guy who inherited, you know, the, the Republican Party was the guy who was the most extreme in his reaction to Obama right like that all it does is push everything further to the right so you just get further and further away from the actual policies that we need to improve uh you know the economics right like we, these are big systemic things i mean that actually might number 3 is debt work and housing right big systemic things that have to be changed at a massive policy level and you don't do that by just being like okay hey you know we'll move a little bit to the right and we'll bring yeah. on some of these guys and we'll be like you can be racist like once a week or whatever you know just like that silly like oh we'll just feed you like a little bit of racism is fine and then you know we yeah. can still get some stuff done I, I i don't think i don't think the the means justify the ends is is basically my issue with that Mm -hmm. Right.
2: And then, but then we like get move more and more towards the system of like kind of pendulum politics where like, you know, is as soon as the progressives get like even a minor win then there's like you know this backlash effect and it's sort of like is there some like how is there a way in like the foreseeable future to get out of that system of this like pendulum you know (laughs) because because yeah yeah if you if anytime you try to do any of this concession politics it just doesn't it just doesn't work right i
0: I think the concession politics is it is worse it leads to a more yeah. and more radical because the the what the right understands electorally and have done for for 30 years or so is you have to vilify your opponents you have to create uh, animosity and fear and you have to push the window of what is acceptable towards uh, whatever your ideology is, you know the NRA is a great example of this, right? When, when they were formed in the seventies, their reading of the right to bear arms was completely non-mainstream. Nobody had that opinion. No legal scholars, no judges. Certainly, they were seen as insane cranks. But what they did is just. Endlessly push the conversation in that direction as much as possible until the center of gravity is near enough to that position that it becomes reasonable. And so, actually, if you have, you know, uh, now healthcare for all is a common policy. It wasn't. It wasn't the policy of every democratic candidate, but it's a policy of multiple. Democratic candidates. And even the centrist ones are like, well, we're going to have something along those lines, you know, which is unthinkable under, you know, John Kerry, right? Unthinkable. No one would ever have spoken about it. Same in the UK. I mean, actually, it's been a weird thing Uh, since Corbyn lost. The Conservative Party have been passing a lot of the policies from the the labor manifesto because they're really popular policies where they're like oh maybe we should be nationalizing uh, certain industries maybe we should be giving free internet to everybody you know like they just <laughs> cuz they're like well just take the win you know these are popular um but that actually means that the policy window has shifted so right right so that so when you're just going oh yeah here we'll just we'll shift over we'll shift over to to accommodate you you actually just, it becomes more and more extreme in one direction. And the reaction right. is completely unhinged anyway. I'm sure you could, you know, you could do a super cut of all the insane things that people said on Fox News about Obama, like unhinged, completely unhinged. Yeah. You know? Unhinged. And, <laughs> and it was the, the most moderate possible guy, you know, the most conciliatory <laughs> possible leader yeah. that you could have had. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't. It doesn't make a difference. So the reaction is always going to be there. The pendulum is always going to be there because they that serves a political purpose, you know? So you just, you just have to ignore it, I think.
2: Yeah, because yeah. I think right now in the U.S., that's that's exactly what's happening with the whole abolish the police and, you know, defund the police is that like, you know, they're trying to shift that overton window of like, you know, the political possibilities more towards, you know, the likelihood of like, okay, let's say this really extreme thing to make the actual sure. thing that we want seem more likely to happen. Yeah, it's like and, negotiating
0: and right yeah. for a price. You, <laughs> does, does you don't ever start with the thing that you actually want, you start with something way less than what what you know, than what yeah. you actually won and, and then you get negotiated upwards and you're like oh good I got the thing that I wanted but right, the and the right has played that game for 30, 40 years yeah. it's just that the left hasn't done it um, yeah. and, and that's why they keep losing right and uh, even on policy even when you win the w- win power you still lose on policy often you know um, right. that's Tony Blair Bill Clinton right they're the great examples of this right like they're the people who passed in a way, you know, Clinton and the the Crime Bill, right? Like, this is the big bet noir of the Black Lives Matter protests, and that that's not a Republican bill; that's a Democrat bill,
2: <laughs> right? Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, what are we doing here? You know, like, what are we, what are we ascribing things to? Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: But it is the only way to make policy change that lasts. To like try and smash it through. When you have when you like when your party has enough power in you know the American political system, and then hope that people feel good effects from it, yeah, and it, and then it becomes commonplace. Like, is that the only way to make lasting change?
0: <laughs> I mean, it's definitely not the only way, and I, I don't want to be completely electoralist here. Yeah. Um, in that uh, you it's know, not, a, a, it's not a
1: very a, radical way of thinking. A,
0: well, and it also. And also just to say to people every four years, you get your one chance, you know, <laughs> is, is pretty... I mean, if you're talking about ways to get people to disengage with politics, I mean, that's a pretty good way to do it, right? To say, well, this is it, this is your one chance. If it doesn't go your way, then just, you know... <laughs> you're, you're You're screwed. Like, yeah. it's pretty disenchanting. Um, so I don't want to push totally on that. Also, I mean, frankly, the, the U.S. Uh, legislative system is... Is fundamentally broken. I mean, it's, it's nuts. Like you barely pass laws. I mean, Mm -hmm. like none at all. Right. I mean, how many (laughs) bills has Congress pushed to Senate and like how, what is passed? Has anything been passed under Trump? Like two laws or something, you know, even he, even he with his like radical agenda or whatever, couldn't get anything passed because it's completely a broken. So that top level is very broken. I think, I think in the US that there is a lot to be said for particularly city level, uh, legislating and the Mm -hmm. rise of, uh, you know, like super mayors and all that kind of stuff, um, because cities are where most people are. It's where many of the problems can be solved. You know, if you talk about, you know, housing and work and, uh, actually climate, you know, like these are problems that are concentrated in places where people live. So. The people who have political power over those people are are also very important. So that kind of like city level stuff, I think, is very important. Um, but then also, we have seen in the last ten years, particularly, massive social movements that have been incredibly impactful. You know, the the um, the the movement from the school shooters, right? That has been incredibly impactful. Uh, Black Lives Matter, we've already spoken about. Also, um, uh, you know, Fridays for Future, the Greta Thunberg uh, movement, um, Extinction Rebellion, which I don't know how big that is in the US, but in, in Europe, it's unbelievably impactful. So you can do a lot by getting people to organize around single issues as well. And I think particularly now when so many people feel pushed out and unrepresented by the mainstream political process. There is a lot of energy out there that people would like to see things change and therefore these kinds of social movements are becoming um, very powerful. So there are some other ways and I wouldn't put any faith in you know, Congress being able yeah. to do anything frankly i mean it's uh, yeah, remarkable to, that to me this, that, you know
1: yeah i'm hoping this really fucking turbulent four years that the united states has had and it seems like maybe the world has had um will you know inspire people to like keep moving past or keep stay activated beyond you know the the fucking national election we're about to have mm-hmm. um either with with either win right because even if I think we've we've touched on this before, but even if Joe Biden gets into office, like I, I'm not expecting big things from the man. I'm like I'm hoping that he doesn't tweet constantly
0: from his fucking phone. <laughs> sure, I mean that's that's and, kind of the, that's his platform basically, right?
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. He's like he's like I'm not gonna tweet, and I will like make marginally better choices for COVID that will like will result in like
0: yeah, and die, and the, which and, and uh, you know on on foreign policy points like just being being appearing more stable is a very useful thing yeah just
2: not being <laughs> um, a lunatic but <laughs> i think
0: domestically i wouldn't hold out much hope i mean so th- so my my two other things that radicalize people are very much like big issues that i don't think joe biden is any is no framework for basically so the debt work and housing right like uh i mean debt is particularly bad in the us obviously because of uh, the price of, of college and um uh well i mean there's uh, millions of statistics but uh, millennials have 300% more student debt than their parents they're half as likely to own a house they had to work Four thousand four hundred and fifty-nine hours to pay for college versus three hundred and six hours that their parents had to work. So, like, this is a f- insanely broken system. So instead of being launched into the work, you know, work world with uh, you know a, a great degree and a lot of opportunities, it's like here's a bunch of debt that you will never be able to manage and then you build on that health care you know any kind of healthcare care emergency you you know your your credit rating's actually gone forever you know and it's very hard to to recover from a negative beginning in terms of like building wealth and being comfortable uh and having good quality of life right so this is a huge huge problem and then connected to that are the quality of work that is available so you know, there's uh, wage, no wage increases since the 80s, the early 80s, essentially, in terms of real terms, like the how far your dollar goes. So people have been doing a lot of work for a long time getting poorer <laughs> in real terms, which is nuts. And the worst part about that is that all the housing has been filling up that is even near to where they're working. So... You're going further and further away, and adding more and more cost in terms of getting to and from work because um, there's not enough housing. So uh, we had a whole episode on this uh, on on the housing issue, and actually the differences in, uh, between the U.S. and the U.K. In the U.S. it's mostly a zoning issue, in the U.K. it's basically we just haven't built any houses for like a hundred years, um, <laughs> <laughs> which you know, whoops. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, no, actually, not. It's it's the but it's the same symptom, which is the people who own the current housing stock uh, are the people who are very valuable in in terms of political influence, and because uh, they can yeah. pay for campaigns or just because they vote in massive numbers in the UK and very predictably. So if you can court those people, then you can keep winning elections. You can keep winning power. Instead so courting the other people, why do it? Why bother? So uh, that's a huge, huge problem. And uh, yeah, staying engaged in electoral politics, I don't think is going to give young voters a lot of hope on any of those issues.
1: Yeah. I I think it's wild how, yeah, how absent housing, specifically housing is from, you know, discourse on the, on the, the national political level because of how seemingly like, kind of ubiquitous of a, pro- like, of a problem it is, right? I know that you were just talking about, you know, city politics, and I think that's definitely discourse that we hear, like, from mayors and things like yep. that. Um, but, you know, housing prices haven't stopped going up, and we've already discussed um, how, you know, wages have, <laughs> and that's, like, that's a basic issue, right? That's a basic fundamental problem in our system that... Kind of, yeah, just kind of goes untalked about.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's also it's still very short-term thinking, right? Because, so if I'm a property developer, at a certain point, I run out of boomers to sell houses to. Like we're getting, (laughs) we're getting there, right? Like, so you you know, my parents are retired. I think most boomers are retired now, I think as a, you know, like a majority actually of them are retired. So they're not accumulating much more wealth. They're probably going to be moving it around and using it for different things. So all those massive, you know, suburban four bedroom houses for their families or whatever, actually it's a, it's a big issue at the moment in, in suburbs in the States. I know that those like boomer dream houses that they had with their families, they now can't sell because they have these uh, two million dollar houses out in the suburbs. They're too big. They're too far away from work. No one can buy them. So they're just they're just stuck with these huge empty houses. Um, so that you know that that is not a system that is going to work for like housing as a market going forwards, right? That doesn't make any sense. Um, but you know, in the short term, the the profits remain there, right? So, and this is sort of the the disease of also like, well, we'll get a load of people into work, right? We'll get them in unstable work. We'll make it really easy for employers to, you know, to hire and fire people. They don't have to give them any benefits. Let's just get as many people into work as possible. But then we won't really pay them anything. And, uh, (laughs) you know, they have to spend all of, most of their money on rent and then, the next amount of it on transport to and from work. And then it's like, well, okay, but who's buying all the stuff that you're producing? You know, like who's buying all those coffees? Uh, who's, who's buying the scooters or, you know, whatever it is. Like who, who is left to purchase the things that all of this labor is going into producing? Like there's still enough of them, I guess now, but that's going to run out. Right. Like, if, right. You
2: can't just accumulate all the wealth and then like pursue all this rent seeking behavior, assuming there's going to be
0: <laughs> I, who, who's going to buy it in you know? a market. Yeah. <laughs> who's going to buy it ultimately. I mean, this is the big issue of like supply side, you know, trickle down economics is like, well, eventually everybody else runs out of money. So you can, you stop being able to sell things to them. Like this is <laughs> such an obvious closed <laughs> loop of a, of a problem. Uh, but, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to matter. I mean, this is the big shocking thing, right? The, the amount of wealth, generational wealth, is like this enormous thing. Um, there was a study on it in the US. I, I know, uh, so once millennials will hit an average age of 35 in about three years, and in between, in those three years, they need to triple the average wealth to hit where generation X were in terms of share of overall wealth in the country. and they would have to times it by seven to hit where <laughs> boomers were when they were all 35 on average. But that isn't really how wealth accumulation tends to work. It tends to be you start from a certain point and that pretty much dictates how much you grow from there. So yeah, it's pretty. Late, you yeah. have people start low with a bunch of debt, who haven't been able to grow at all because the job market's been horrible and wages have stayed low. You know, what's, what's the plan for when all the boomers retire or age out of making any more money? You know, they sell off their properties or they just let them be abandoned. You know, they're in retirement home. What's the plan? Like, how does that economy work? Um, and it's sort of amazing... That we don't talk about any of this. Like, what's the long-term plan for how this economy could possibly work is never, never discussed. Let alone if you take the like economic, uh, uh, ecological collapse, you know, and climate, um, where you go, well, if we keep growing by 50% every year, then that can't possibly work because you know in 10 years the the, the curve is, is some enormous amount of production that needs to happen where the, there's finite resources on the earth you know like we just keep burning more and more fuel and more and more you know to try and stay growing um, you know there we're not hearing any of that in this uh, election right and we don't hear any of that in the in the in the UK elections really or it's dismissed you don't hear it's it anywhere. It's dismissed yeah. as being like crank talk. Where it's like, well, we actually can't keep doing this thing. Even if we accept that this is the best it's ever going to be, it still isn't sustainable, you know? Um, so what? what's the plan? Mm-hmm. What's the plan there? Joe Biden? <laughs> um, yeah. and he's like, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I won't tweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very frustrating. Right. right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs>
1: that's facts. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it's all hopeless, but no, be in your, get activated on a local level. Man.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, my message is like, who wouldn't be radicalized by this set of material <laughs> circumstances? So, that's the first thing. So, if people come at you and they're like, oh, you've been spending too much time on YouTube or whatever, uh you know, you've been led astray capitalism is the best system, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that the, the status quo isn't good. You yeah. know, it could be improved upon, as we said at the start, right? Like there's right. a lot of evidence there. And, that, you know, you, you can reel off any of those kind of like four areas, right? Like it, just pick one that will resonate with the person you're speaking to, you know. Um, and there's a lot of actually support for all these things as well. Um, you know, issue by issue. It's just when we bundle these things together, they become scary and dangerous. But I, I ask people to think, why Why is it that they are seen as scary and dangerous? It's because they threaten power.
2: Yeah. And I also think that when people hear the word radical, right, they think, you know, these people want a violent revolution. Right. And. <laughs> Like that's something that 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 I've been thinking a lot about, you know, with respect to, you know, again, this police conversation that's been going on about how like the state has this monopoly on Mm -hmm. violence. Right. And, you know, that is a main weapon to, you know, that that basically like, you know, this one side can use and the other Mm -hmm. side cannot. Right. And that's like a huge again, it's very similar to what's you know, it kind of mirrors what's going on in Congress with the oh, well, Republicans can throw out your Supreme Court justice and not hear them. And, you know, Democrats can't. Right. If one side can use these tools Mm -hmm. of power. Right. And like, you know, the rules of the game are fundamentally different. How does one if you're committed to like oh, like when they go low, we go high, but going high is not as effective, is just, uh, you know, blatantly <laughs> not.
0: Going right? low works all the time. Every uh, time,
2: yeah, right? Yeah. And we,
0: uh, and we,
2: <laughs> what do you we, do we, about we sort of that? We also
0: see this in the, <laughs> you know, like culture wars stuff, right? There was this whole thing where it was like, you remember the rise of the, the, the intellectual dark web? They seem to have died down a little bit recently. Yeah. Um, but there was, that was a big thing, you know, early Trump times, right? Like here, oh, there's these new intellectuals and they're coming about and they're very popular and they've all kind of like died off for various reasons. But one of the most effective ways of dealing with those people is just stop inviting them to speak at events. They get paid to do events. I mean, they get paid to do columns and speak at events. And if you just stop inviting them, they run out of money and they stop doing it. You know, no platforming, which a lot of people were like, oh, well, so much for the tolerant left, etc. You know, it's like, well, because it's effective. It's actually a really effective way of doing this. And we don't need to hear, you know, we don't need to hear people spouting hate and saying, oh, this is free speech because we've had all these arguments. We don't need to hit, we don't need to debate everything, you know. Um, and I think there is this, uh trap that people fall into where it's like, well, we need to, you know, talk through every idea and have a discussion and we win the argument. But the, our opponents do not act this way. And also there's some arguments you don't need to win. You've, you've won. The argument's been won, you know, and the other side t- pretending to argue, you know, some, some abhorrent point of view, they're not doing it to win the argument they're doing it for other reasons they're doing it for attention they're doing it for power for distraction whatever it is they're not there as like real debaters <laughs> that is not this is not the intention i think it's also the the thing that the press get wrong about populist leaders is that they think that they're like oh wow this guy is acting really weirdly for a politician you're like well he's not He's not a politician. Like he's not doing the job that you think he's doing. And if you frame everything in that, like, well, he should be acting more like X, Y, Z. That's not what's going on, you know? Um, so I think one of the things for, for like younger people looking to be into politics is to stop taking so much of things at face value um, and to call, just call out bad actors. Cause some of them, are just in it for the wrong reasons and they're doing the wrong things, you know? And they're not, then they're, they're, they're probably, I mean, maybe they're ideologically committed to whatever it is they're, you know, they're spouting, but I think a lot of the time they're just in it for money and attention. Um, and that's okay to just dismiss people, I think, you know? Um, I think we get <laughs> distracted a lot of the time by those sort of constructed arguments and we get pulled into having the arguments on the terms of our opponents rather than saying okay I don't care about who's in the toilet you know the planet is dying (laughs) you know what are we even arguing about like this is this is on the scale of problems this is a low one you know like this is nothing Let's talk about the real things that will impact the most people.
1: Hello Rowan, thanks so much for sitting with us today. Um, really enjoyed your perspective. My question to you is, how are things in Brussels with COVID? Are y'all like kicking it? Are you good? (laughs)
0: Um, we, it's, we've been a bit weird. Belgium doesn't get reported on a lot in the international, uh, news cause it's a small weird country. Um, they, we, it's strange in Belgium cause they count basically any possible death that might be covered related as, as covered related. So like any death in a care home, anything, it's just so like the opposite. Yeah. They, uh, yeah Belgium overcounts cause they're like, this is, it's better to overcount than to undercount. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. so it was seen as not doing very well for a while, but, uh, it's basically been fine. One of the issues, uh, that we have is that Brussels is like a two hour train ride from Paris, Amsterdam and London. Um, it's like four hours on the train to, to, you know, to Germany, like it's incredibly connected. Um, so which is one of the reasons a lot of people move to Brussels, actually, because it's really in the, the heart of like Western Europe and you can just move all around. But that is obviously an issue in pandemic times. But, um, yes, on global levels, we're doing pretty well.
1: Do you want to take a second and yeah, just plug plug your show and any like social media platforms associated with it?
0: Yeah, sure. So, um, it's connection disaffected or, uh, at C and D podcast, Um, So we're, you know, we're on everywhere, Twitter, Facebook, whatever you want. Mostly Twitter and also we have a subreddit as well. Um, We're on all the podcast platforms that you want to get it. But it's, it's, uh, it's about the the future of politics, right? We, we try not to talk about horse race or what's going on in the elections. It's more like, well, what are the ideas that are going to move things forward? You know, um, who are the people that are trying new things that are at least, uh, at least have a chance of making an impact, you know. Um, so, so please check it out if you're interested. It's UK, 80% UK focus, I'd say. I have the view from Brussels, so there's a bit of an EU angle there, but a lot of it is applicable to US uh, listeners. Well, actually, most of our listeners are in the US. So, check it out if you wanna if you wanna get some big ideas to argue with your parents about, you know.
1: If you liked this episode, if you like Rowan, if you hate Rowan or us, (laughs) um, let us know at I'm the Villain Pod. That's our Twitter. That's our Gmail. um, And that is our Instagram. Otherwise, bye.